to praise you, to sing your praises, to worship you with all that we are. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, speak to us through the music, speak to us through scripture, speak to us through our prayers and through communion this morning. Just bless us this morning with your presence and your words. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, this morning we're going to look at a passage in Scripture that if you grew up going to Sunday school, you've probably heard this story, but it's not necessarily talked about all the time in church. So, if you didn't, you, you may know it, you, you might not. I, I'm not going to assume anything here. But we're going to be going to the book of Judges. Uh, and we're going to be looking at story of a guy named Samson and a woman named... Does anybody know? Delilah. Now, Samson is a champion. He's this Rambo-type character. Uh, he takes on whole armies. He fights for God's people, the Israelites. And so the, the story can be found, if you, if you want to read the whole thing, we're, we're only looking at a, a small chunk, but if you want to read the whole thing, you can find it in Judges chapter 14 through chapter 16. Um, but an angel comes to Samson's mother before she's pregnant and says, you're going to be pregnant, you're going to have a child, and I want him to be a Nazarite. I want him to be set apart. And so you cannot eat unclean meats while you're in your pregnancy. You cannot drink wine. And after he's born, he's going to need to do the same thing. Also, it says a, a razor cannot touch his head. He can't have his hair cut. And this is to mark him as being set apart, but he's consecrated to God. Now, as part of this, he's, he's given this great strength. And as I said, he takes on whole armies. He's this Hulk-like character who is, has incredible strength. And, but Samson had a weakness, and that weakness was women. Now, the enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines... Uh, of course, we know them from David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine, but they, Samson also wages war against the Philistines to protect the Israelites. And the Philistines know this weakness. They know that Samson has a weakness for women. And they also know that he is incredibly attracted to this valley girl named Delilah. And you've got to say it with some dramatic effect, right? Can't have a name like that and not say it a little breathy, a little dramatic. <laughs> now, Delilah, she would be the downfall for Samson. She's promised lots of money for, from the Philistines to find out the source of Samson's strength. And it begins in uh, verse 5 of chapter 16. And, and it says that Delilah seduces or entices Samson. And this is where it all begins. Enticement. Temptation. From there it says in verse 16 that Delilah pressured him. She began urging him and pestering him to reveal his secret. Why do you have this strength? What is the source of your strength? And I want to ask the question, isn't that true in our life? The, these are the stages that so many go through in the process of being compromised by sin. There's enticement. There's a flashy image 
something that looks so good, that promises some form of pleasure and enjoyment. But of course it covers and cloaks a dangerous, deadly hook. From there, he's pressured. Samson is pressured. Similarly, we, we become pressured with the thought of that thing. And there becomes compromise. At first it's temptation, but then it's pestering and, and it's overwhelmed with the thought. It feels like everywhere we turn, everything in our world is pushing, pushing. It says at the end of verse 16 that Samson becomes vexed. From pestering and prodding, he becomes vexed. Vexation is a place of feeling like resistance is useless. That fighting this is useless. I can't beat it. And this is where we're picking up today in our text, verse 17. And he, Samson, told her all of his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called him a man man, and had him shave the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. We're going to continue on in a second, but I want to point this out. Delilah lulls Samson to sleep. He sleeps on his vulnerability and his weakness. He becomes relaxed, just as so many of us sleep and become relaxed and let our guard down on sin and we be- as we become used to its presence in our life. After this, Scripture tells us that she began to torment Samson. This is a dark, depressing, very real place that so many people find themselves in, often in the area of their morality or their addictions or their shortcomings, and yes, their sexuality. And, and we cannot talk about this without mentioning the common struggle in today's world. So many people struggle with pornography. Of course, its, it's access has grown exponentially. And interestingly, If we're talking about darkness, studies, you can look this up, studies have shown that pornography affects the brain much like a synthetic drug. It offers an incredible high, but it drops the person so low, so fast, so quick, and it leads to a self-loathing. You can look this up. It It is much like synthetic drugs. Samson was tormented by Delilah. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Now he says this because multiple times before this, Samson told Delilah, 
false things about how his source of strength came. He, he says, weave my hair, that, that will drain my strength, and then she would have him bound, and then he would break free of his bonds. Uh, there were multiple instances of this. But he says, uh, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Today I want to look at this word bound, or bondage, which is this place that so many people find themselves in in relation to their sin and their addictions and their urges. Verse, but before we go on, verse 22 has to be a source of great encouragement because it does say, the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So there is hope at the end of this. When I was young, about six years old, uh, I had family, some cousins down in Oregon, and we used to go on vacation sometimes to go see them. And it was hot one summer, and there was a big lake near where they lived. And so we went out, go swimming in the lake. I think I was about six or seven. I was not a super experienced swimmer. I could swim, but I wasn't very good yet. And I got out too deep into the water. And I remember very clearly just feeling sucked down into the water. There were, there were some swells deeper out into the lake. They were pushing me down. And I, I, along comes Buck. Now, Buck was a dog that belonged to my cousins, and he and I had a complicated relationship. Um, I was, at that age, a little bit scared of big dogs. I, I grew out of that. I love big dogs now. But at the time, I was small. Big dogs were a little intimidating. And Buck, in particular, who had his name for good reason, because he would come charging at you and buck you to the ground and then stand on you, and he would proceed to lick your face. He meant it all in good fun, but um, to a six-year-old, that was slightly terrifying. Um, so Buck and I did not exactly have a, a great relationship at this point, but he comes swimming out to me, and in a full-on lassie moment, I grab onto his tail, and Buck swam me back to shore. And I love Buck after that. <laughs> but uh, he pulls me to safety. But bondage, this word bound means to be held under, held under the power of something. Even when you want to get up, even when you want to get out, what started out as a rush, what started out as something fun, what started out like something like a swim in the lake, is now controlling you, holding you down in an environment you can't survive in for long. And this is where you start to wonder, am I going to be just another statistic? Is this, I'm just going to succumb to the same urges, the same temptation, the same sin. You want to get up. You hate where you are. It's hurting. You're helpless, but you can't. A, a great scholar once said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now, I'm not going to say the name of the person who said this because... Later on, after their death, it became clear that there were massive, massive sin in their life that they were hiding from the world. 
Uh, but this quote almost, it gives almost more significance to this quote because I believe that this is an honest one from somebody who had a darkness within them. Knowing their past gives it almost more weight because I believe this comes from a man who was broken by his sin. Bondage. It started off like, this is fun. Ooh, I, I like this. It's, I, oh, wow, this feels good and fun. And maybe even in some way it doesn't feel wrong. I'm not actually doing something that bad like some other people. What starts off like something I can control. It's like Samson. He tells Delilah, you bind me with new ropes. Ha ha ha. You can't hold me. Yeah, yeah. Weave my hair. It won't stop me. Then he gets a haircut. And he wakes up with the same arrogant attitude. I'll shake myself free. No, he won't. That's how temptation and bondage works. It's just a thought. It's just a glance. It's just this. It's just that. It won't bind me. It won't control me. And then you wake up someday and you can't get up. And it might look like everything's held together. There might be good appearances. Have fun laugh, joke along with everybody else, but when it comes to our own morality, we are held under by unseen forces. What ends up happening, often we begin to hate this place. I don't want to be here. I don't want to struggle with this anymore. It becomes a cycle, a cycle of addiction, as you can, again, find this, just Google image, the cycle of addiction. Something frustrating comes along, and it triggers what, they, what clinicians refer to as fantasizing about another place that feels good. It's just this escape. It just doesn't frustrate us like the here and the now. But then somewhere along after fantasizing comes obsessing, where we can't get it out of the mind. From obsessing, eventually, there's acting out, succumbing to that sin. We feel guilt and shame. And eventually, there's a commitment of, I'll never do it again. But then time happens, and we become numb. Eventually comes another frustration, another hard moment, and the cycle starts all over. And every time you hit that place of commitment, it's just like, I'll just try harder, then I'll be free. Maybe there are tears and there's sorrow and I'm not gonna do this anymore. You'll see I'll beat this and just like Samson, we might as well say I'll shake myself free. As if we have any power over that. As if I had the ability with my six-year-old body to pull myself out of there, those waves on my own. The truth is, you're no match. You're no match for the power of sin and temptation. Go ahead, Samson, shake yourself free. But the Bible says that the Lord had departed from Samson. Samson had started to think that his strength had to do with, with something from him. 
We started to think that God chose me because I'm a pretty great guy. Because when things got bad, he says, I'll do it. I'll rip off these ropes like I've done. I'll show them how strong I am. But without God, he was weak just like anything, anyone else. This is what we do. When we find ourselves in situations and activities held under the power of sin, we start to believe, I'll, I'll shake myself free. I'll throw away the paraphernalia. I'll cut out people who are influencing me. I'll, I'll listen to better music that helps encourage me and hype me up. I'll, I'll cut out triggering movies, I don't know, less R-rated movies, whatever. I'll, put, I'll, I'll take all the precautions and you'll see. And by the way, I recommend precautions. I'm not saying that precautions are bad, but if God is not in it, if God is not at the center of the fight, it will only result in momentary relief. Now, here's the point. I know this sounds dark and maybe overwhelming, and maybe you're sitting here going, like, I thought we were going to talk about something hopeful, something fun today. So I, I, want, I came here wanting to hear something maybe joyful. And here's the point. There is hope. There is hope, but you're not your hope. There's only one singular source of hope, and it's Jesus. Quickly, so often, many Christians who relied on Christ at salvation become like Samson and go, now I, now I have to shake myself free. Say, I, you know, I, I relied on Christ at salvation, but now that... Now that I'm saved, man, I, I gotta work harder. I gotta do my part. I gotta access my inner, inner goodness. But here's the point today. Write it down, underline it, I don't care what you have to do, save it in your phone. How you are saved is how you will be sustained. And how you will be sustained is how you are set free. Because here's what we do subtly. We don't necessarily intend to, but some of us start to believe, maybe it's been a long time since you first accepted Christ as your Savior, but some of us start to believe that God looked at us and saw potential. God looked at us and saw not something great, but something he could work with. Like now, now it's up to us. He gave us salvation because there was potential to it. We sometimes get this idea that now, now that we've been saved, we've got to work to keep ourselves saved. We, and we come back to humanism rather than the gospel. But here's the truth. God did not look at you and see anything of merit in your goodness. God did not look at humanity and see anything of merit in our works and our efforts and our morality. He saw merit in what he created and what he put his handiwork on and what he valued. If we even one ounce of our salvation is from our merit, then what becomes of grace? If God chose you because this person is better than that person and there's more potential there, if that's how salvation works, and now that if you're struggling, you've been saved, but you're struggling, well, now you've got to work to access your goodness and improve your morality. If that's, if that's the gospel, we're no different than any group on the planet, and what we worship is not Jesus, it's moralism. 
All we become is a group, a community that agrees on certain values and morals and principles. Or we're Jesus people, bought with a price, who believe that the person of Jesus is the only answer to broken and hurting people. Ephesians 2 verse 4, speaking of our salvation, says, But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he shows, it doesn't say, but David, it doesn't say, but John, but Paul, but Susan, but Mary, but Amanda, none of your butts saved anybody. And if you're offended, I meant the word B-U-T, not B-U-T-T. But God. That's what we believe. Like right there, that's the, that's the gospel. What comes before the but doesn't matter anymore. Like if somebody comes up to me and says, David, I know... I, I think you're th awesome, I think you're great, I th you do this, you do that, but... How many of you know that what came before the but doesn't really matter to the rest of the sentence? Right? It's the same way with this, but the reverse. You were broken, you were in bad shape, but God! What happens after the but, what comes after the but is God, is Jesus, is redemption, is mercy, is grace. That's the gospel. God saved you, not because of what was in you, but because of what was in Him. His mercy, His goodness, His righteousness, even when you were dead in your trespasses. You don't look at dead people. We don't look at dead people and go, oh man, they're really doing some great work there. There's a lot of potential there. You're exhibiting a lot of potential for great qualities. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. This is how you're saved. This is good news. This is how you're saved. He doesn't come to you based on you. He comes to you based on himself. All of our faith, all of our good works, which, which I believe in, which is Good. All of that is subsequent, secondary, and in response to him and his goodness and his grace. If that is the case, then how you are saved is how you are sustained. And how you are sustained is how you are set free. That's the way that God saves you. Isn't that the way that he will continually, continually set you free from temporary or seasonal or extended periods of bondage and of sin and of failure and temptation. God knows what's going on in your heart. He knows. He knows the consistency of your desires and your secrets. He knows. And he loves you. You're not set free on your merit. You're set free on his goodness and his mercy. Sometimes we seem to treat this like religious tradition. It becomes something that's lifeless. But if he's enough, that changes everything. Before we end today, I want to look at an account out of the Gospels. 
And we see this moment of Jesus going to the cross. And everything seems to be going, progressing, going kind of hand in hand. One thing's leading to another. And there's one character who kind of seems out of place and seems to interrupt things. His name is Barabbas. We don't know much about him other than he's a murderer, he's a rebel, leader of an insurrection, he's a bad guy. And Pilate, the Roman governor of the region, is talking to Jesus after his arrest. He's grilling Jesus. He's trying to get to the bottom of things. And he, he asks Jesus who he is and where he's from. And, and Jesus doesn't give him an answer. And so Pilate starts to get frustrated. And he goes, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have authority to either send you to the cross or to release you, to, to, to save you? And Jesus answered him, you know, Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. In other words, this is not a tragedy, Pilate. You're not in control. This is the Father's will. The crucifixion of Jesus was not murder or tragedy. It was the plan and purpose of an almighty and loving God. Pilate then thinks, I, I hold the destinies of these two men. I know that the Jews on a holy day have a tradition where they will release somebody who's on death row. And I will either, I will give them a choice. I will give them Jesus or Barabbas. He stands on an audacious stage with Jesus Son of God versus Barabbas, thug, and rebel. He goes, all right, who do you want? I mean, don't miss this. This is, this is blasphemy. This is, this is too far. There's no comparison. God in flesh and bone versus Jesus. Jesus, Son of the living God, who has done no wrong, someone who against somebody who should be in prison, somebody who should be on death row, a man who murders people. He's a bad man. He's a crook. He deserves a prison. He deserves crucifixion. What has Jesus done but heal people, restore people, forgive sins? But the people call out for Barabbas. So Barabbas walks down. The soldiers come and unlock his chains, and he walks down. Don't miss this. Jesus stood there silent. Now, think back to one other time where Jesus was, they were trying to kill Jesus. They tried to push him off a cliff. And there's kind of this interesting moment in Scripture where Jesus kind of doesn't exactly say he disappeared. It just says he walks through the crowd untouched. It's like he's there and then whoosh, walks through. Jesus could have done the same thing here. He could have done any number of things to walk away from this. He had the power, but he knew the will of the Father, and he stood there silent. He says, it's fine, Father. Let them have Barabbas. For Jesus, Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas in order to treat Barabbas like Jesus. 
Barabbas might have thought it was the people that set him free. It wasn't. It was the will of the Father. Don't miss who Barabbas is. That's me. That's you. It's us. For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for Barabbas. Even the one he knew would walk away from him, maybe never acknowledge him. He loves him. So many people, though, who received this gift, who know they were saved by grace, they have the nerve to turn around and, and think, I was saved by grace, but now that I'm in this pit of bondage and, and the sin in my life, now I have to get work to get myself out. Like, what? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you, do you feel like you're being controlled by the power of temptation? Do you feel like it's controlling you and we think, I'm going to shake myself free? No, you won't. You're no match. You're not enough. You're not enough to overcome it. You will never overcome it. You don't have the answer within yourself. It's not your own goodness or your own work or your own discipline or your own dedication. It will not save you. You have only one hope. And he's the one who took your place, who stood silently on the platform and said, yes, let them have Barabbas, let them have David, let them have Paul, let them have Mary, let them have Susan. Take me. That's all we've got. It's the only chance we have. And we can go through the motions and we can do the church things and play church games and we can pretend like some people are, are different than others and there's potential or we can be honest with ourselves and say it's, it's God. It's only God. Because of his love. His mercy. That's the biggest challenge is believing the gospel. It says to us, let me have your sin, son. Let me have your sin, daughter. And I give him my sin. And I stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance and grace. And Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. Where did we get off thinking that we're going to set ourselves free? It's still Jesus. It will always be Jesus. It will never stop being Jesus. His blood is sufficient for your salvation, but his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge, through every sin, through every temptation. For what saves you will sustain you, and what sustains you will set you free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your Son. I thank you for his sacrifice and the mercy that you showed us each day. Lord, I pray that you would constantly remind us that our hope is in you. Our hope is not in ourselves. God, we, we try so hard to do it on our own. God, I pray that you would just work in our hearts to remind us that we can't, that we need you. Continue. In Jesus' name, amen.